What an incredible sight to look out this morning on this beautiful lawn and see all of you gathered here. It uh, says something that the commencement in the spring of this school is now so large that we have to move outside in order to accommodate those who want to come. And that means that we pray for days like this. And uh, we were reminded early yesterday evening of how close a call this can be. But look at how the Lord has made for us and provided for us this day. I will also tell you that if we have a choice between being warm or wet, warm is better. Just consider your hearts warmed along with the occasion and appropriately so. This is Southern Seminary's 222nd commencement. That really says something, 222. The seminary is 160 years old. That tells you something about how many individuals, soon to be 33,000, who have graduated from this institution. You begin to understand the magnitude of what God has done and what God is doing. This is my 52nd commencement of the seminary as the president of this institution. You would think that the danger would be that they would all run together. The danger would be that this would become all too familiar. But how could it be? I mean, just consider what we are witnessing here. The, the sheer majesty and glory of what God is doing in sending out these graduates into the world. But furthermore, we don't look at graduating classes merely as, as assemblies. Every single one of them individually called of God. Every single one of them answering that call, every single one of them sent out to where the Lord will deploy them. One of the unexpected dimensions of this responsibility is that you grow to love these students and then you see them go. Uh, we would rather they stay. We get to know them. We so often get to know their spouses. In so many cases, we get to know their children they become a part of the Southern Seminary family, and then they are sent out, and then they go, sometimes to the ends of the earth. But that's actually why we're here. That, that's why this school was established. That's actually what we're celebrating here. There was a coming, and now there is a going. And God's glory is in both. It never gets old. But why do we do this? This is quite a formal affair. There's a lot that re is required. Uh, there's complexity behind all of this. Someone had to set up all these chairs. Someone had to make all these arrangements. Furthermore, what we are doing harkens back to graduations and commencement ceremonies going back long before there was a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, back to the medieval era. And, and now we are in an age of the explosion of commencements and graduations, too many actually. We, we have graduation now from kindergarten, graduation from preschool, graduation from the sixth grade, graduation from the eighth grade, graduation from the twelfth grade. By the way, in many cases, they're graduating from the twelfth grade with what they should have learned when they graduated from the sixth grade. But evidently, we're in a society now where not only must everyone have trophies, everyone must graduate. But these aren't paper mache graduation robes you're witnessing here. What, what you see here, even in the gowns and in the regalia worn, is an indication that there's something of deeper significance taking place here. Every one of these 
will receive a graduate degree. Every one of these degrees indicating not only a course of study fulfilled, but a calling and an aspiration and a commitment demonstrated. The master's degrees that indicate that one has mastered the subject as it was defined in the medieval university and continued through an unbroken line of succession. The doctoral degrees, meaning that one is now qualified to teach all of this and the regalia that you see, all of this a demonstration of the answer to God's call in the most serious way imaginable. It's important for us to remember why this commencement is not just like any other graduation. First of all, this is a real commencement. It is not a costume party. These graduates have not gotten dressed up. They are wearing right now what symbolizes, signifies, and dignifies a course of study for Christ's church. This is an incredible accomplishment in every single case. Academic achievement by the most rigorous standards, unprecedented stewardship, demonstrated conviction. What we're seeing here refutes the wisdom of the wise. And what do I mean by that? Just imagine a secular society trying to figure this out. One of my thoughts during one of the prayers this morning, when that airplane flew over, my thought was when they looked down, what in the world do they think is going on? Well, they could probably, at least at that altitude, detect that it was a commencement ceremony. But how surprising would it be when they consider this vast crowd is the graduation ceremony for a theological seminary? For a theological seminary that exists for the training of ministers and missionaries. A, a theological seminary that stands without reservation for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are, as a society, in increasing secularization, told that we are progressively getting over that. Look around you. This is a sign that Christ's church is not getting over the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Amen. This isn't even just a professional milestone. And, and that's because we have to understand and say to one another that the Christian ministry is not a mere profession. All around us are other ceremonies, and, and they're important because we need those professions. We need doctors, we need lawyers, we need nurses, especially the doctors and the nurses. We, 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 we need all of them. We, we, we need architects and engineers. We, we need more and more of those who follow the call to those professions. Those professions have their own standards. They define their own terms. They require certain qualifications. They issue certain certifications. We actually don't do that, and that's not even what's happening. There, there, there will be no license handed to these graduates with their diploma. No, it's God who calls. It's the Holy Spirit who summons. It, it, it is the Holy Spirit of God who equips. It is, it, it is a call to ministry, and ministry isn't a profession. It's more than a profession, never less than a profession. But if you want to understand why it's more than a profession, it is because this is about the only commencement where we will say to these graduates, go and serve and die if you must for the glory of God. That's not very inspiring at a professional school graduation. But we serve a church 
watered with the blood of martyrs. We, we have not before us a human scale of career, but an eschatological scale of God's work in the world. It isn't merely a professional milestone. Those who are seated before us, ready to graduate, they are ministers of a new covenant. They are ambassadors for Christ. They are servants of the word. They are heralds to the nations. They are preachers and teachers for Christ's church. This transforms everything we see here. This isn't just a ceremony, it's a worship service. Why is it a worship service? It, it's, it, it's a worship service because worship is the only rightful response to what we are witnessing here. It's not enough to have a ceremony. It's not enough to throw a party. It's not enough to hold graduation. We are here to worship the one true and living God because he's doing this. He has done this. What we see here is to his glory. That's why we sang hymns and why we read and heard scripture, why we confessed the faith together, why we prayed. And these are not easy times, but this is not about launching these graduates into times that may or may not appear to be propitious. This is a demonstration of God's providence. And in God's sovereignty, this time could not be more right. This is exactly when these graduates are to be deployed. This is exactly when it, God's plan and purpose for their life it intersects with space and time and history, and we are here because it is all right. In the Gospel of Luke, we hear Jesus say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Just imagine how many faithful Christians have been praying that prayer. Just think of right now how many Christians around the world are hearing the Lord's words. They know that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. They are praying to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into his harvest. But what they pray for, we get to see. That's what we see here. What they have been praying for for decades and centuries, we get to see. We dare not miss it. We're going to turn to God's Word, Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 24. Jesus here speaks what we know as the parable of the great banquet or the great feast. Hear the word of the Lord. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, 
and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. People often think of the parables of Jesus as if they're sweet little stories, kind of Christian editions of Aesop's fables, but they are not cute little stories. They made people angry. Indeed, the parables made people angry so much that some plotted how they would kill him. It takes a lot of story to make people want to kill you when you tell the story. The parables of Jesus are, are better understood as explosive. And the metaphor I like to use is that when Jesus spoke in parables, he took out a hand grenade, put it in the crowd, pulled out the pen and said, something's about to go off. And it did. Look at this parable. It begins with this instruction from Jesus not to give a dinner in which you invite those who can't invite you back. If, if, if they invite you back, then you have your own reward. Instead, he said, better to give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Here's the promise, or you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Over and over again, the Bible reminds us that we can choose one of two blessings or one of two rewards. And there are earthly rewards and there are heavenly rewards, and often the way to get to the one is the way to nullify the other. That's a good thing to know. A race for earthly rewards is often met with earthly rewards, but the cost of earthly rewards is often forfeiting heavenly rewards because what one has to do in order to gain the applause of the world is exactly what one must not do to be faithful to the Lord. On the other hand, those who appear to be faithful to God and, 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 and so ignored and unrecognized by the world, Jesus says there is coming a day, he calls it here, the resurrection of the just, when the reward will be sure. I guess there's another point here that we ought to think of in ministry. And, and it, it's a small point, but it's a big message. It's, it's small only in the sense that Jesus does not dwell upon it. But upon reflection, it seems to me that we ought not to miss the fact that Jesus is here telling, well, let's just say his disciples, first of all, that ministry is not transactional. That's a good thing for us to know. It's not transactional. We do not minister in order that we may receive something from those to whom we give the word of God. It's, it's, it's not transactional. Uh, it's, it's bigger than that. And, and we can understand whereas almost every other profession is transactional. I'll do this and you pay me for it. Uh, I'll do this and, and, and you do this for me. It just doesn't work that way in ministry. But the, it's the... It's the statement that seems to incite Jesus here, that one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, is that true or false? It's true. But why would he say it? It's, it's sort of like the person in church who just says the obvious all the time. And, and, and you know the type, I mean, and, and it just... 
Yes, obviously true. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But there must have been some kind of smugness in, in the way he said it, because Jesus responds not with a, well, that was a very interesting statement or amen or how true that was, but hey, buddy, I got a story for you. And, and, and the parable is amazing because we're told that a man gave a great banquet and invited many. And, and, and in the ancient world, especially in this kind of context, there, there were two invitations necessary. And, and the first one was an advance invitation. So an invitation would be sent out. People would be invited. It, it's more or less a save the date, but, uh, but it's formal. It's a very formal invitation. You're expected at this great banquet. And, uh, and, and look, feasts were rare. This was an age of overwhelming poverty. When someone is throwing this kind of feast, it may be the only one you might experience in a year, and it may be that many people would never experience a feast like this. You're invited. When he says, save the date, you save the date. But the second summons is when the banquet is ready. You, you don't show up until the banquet is ready. And so the servant would go out on the day that the great banquet is scheduled, and he would go to those who were invited, and he would say, come now. And by the way, the feast was not just sitting down and eating. A feast was uh, many hours of celebration. It's everything's ready, come now. So these were people who had received and presumably accepted the first invitation, but when the summons actually came, they didn't come. But they had excuses. If you've ever invited people to an event, you know there are excuses, lots of excuses. Look at this. Here you have a man who says, I can't come. I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Well, did you buy it before you saw it? This is intended to be ludicrous. You just don't all of a sudden decide that a real estate transaction is going to keep you from going to the banquet. It's a flimsy excuse. It was recognized as such. So also the second, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Well, again, you examine them before you buy them. No, there's, there's nothing but falsity here. This is, a, this is the kind of excuse that you get from someone who won't look you in the eye. I bought a field. I bought oxen. The most ludicrous one is the last one, which is so often the case in the parables of Jesus. The servant came and said to one man, the banquet is ready. And he said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Seriously. He had never thought about the fact that getting married in this banquet might have some chronological conflict. No, this is, this is like, not I am at my wedding, so I can't come to your banquet. This is more or less, I've married a wife, and I, I'm going to be attentive to domestic responsibilities at home rather than to come to your banquet. So here are the refusals. And so the servant goes to his master and the master's furious. We are told that he became angry, Jesus said. And he says to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now notice the parallelism. That is exactly what Jesus said when in his instruction, he said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite the people who aren't on the A list. 
Invite the people who never get invited to anything. Invite the people who are the outcasts of society. Invite the people who don't expect to be invited and who will know that the invitation is nothing but sheer grace. Invite them. Well, before we go on, is, is this a parable of judgment or a parable of grace? Oftentimes, folks try to distinguish the parables of Jesus. On this list, the parables of judgment. In this list, the parables of grace. The reality is there is judgment in this parable, but there is grace in this parable. And, and so this is a parable of both judgment and grace. Judgment upon those who were invited and would not come. Please let me be excused. The judgment of God on their refusal to come is categorical, it is devastating, and again, it's eschatological, it's final. They're not going to go to the banquet, but they are going to go to hell. They have refused the invitation of God. You put this in the context, it becomes clear that at least a part of what we are seeing here is Jesus making clear that even as he came into his own and his own received him not, as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You can see anticipated here the turn to the Gentiles. You can understand the judgment in the text. You can understand the grace in the text. But the parable continues. When the man comes back, the servant, and says, we did what you told us to do. We went on the streets and we went on the lanes. We found the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. But there's still room. There, 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 there are still seats at the banquet. There, there, there's still room. This is the climax of the passage. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. What captivates me are those words where Jesus speaks and says, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Well, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. It, that my house may be filled. My house. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is marvelous to imagine, even as we are gathered here on this day, Christ's house, his church. It is marvelous to imagine what it means that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, even as we are being built up into this holy building in him. It's marvelous to imagine ministry as, as, as filling God's house, evangelism as helping to fill Christ's house, uh, missions, filling Christ's house. Jesus here is saying, the work is not finished until my house is full. That's why we're so happy. Look, look at this. Look at this assembly of graduates. They are going out in order to fill Christ's house. They are going out in order that Christ's house will be filled. They're going out into the highways and to the hedges. I can remember as a little boy in a Baptist church, a hymn that uses those, used those terms, the highways and the hedges. I had no idea. It didn't make sense to me. I know how to ride on a highway. I have no idea how to ride on a hedge. Uh, 
But, but the hedges were out, out at the periphery of town. This, this meant go out, and the highways were what led out into the world. That was pointing out beyond the boundary, pointing out beyond safety, pointing out to go far beyond where any human host would extend invitation to a banquet. Jesus will later say, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. Here's my confidence. Christ's house will be filled. He, he sends out his workers so that his house will be filled. He sends them out to compel people to come in. There's the urgency of ministry. You can't coerce anyone to come in, but we can compel them to come in. We present the compelling gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray that these graduates will be compelling preachers, that they will be compelling teachers of a compelling gospel, that they will be compelling church planters and compelling missionaries and, and throughout all the fields of ministry. May they be compelling in their ministry by the Holy Spirit so that people, that's the word that's just translated here, people will come in and Christ's house will be filled. I'm absolutely confident that Christ's house will be filled. I know this because Jesus said so. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All the Father gives me will come to me. Not most, not many, all. Biblically, we come to understand that the invitation to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ it will be answered in such a way that to God's glory, according to God's sovereignty, his house is filled. But he means for his workers to go out and compel people to come in that his house may be filled. In the going, there is no place too far, too dangerous, too large, too small, too difficult, too hostile, or too challenging. It's also important that we recognize that in our age and era, the highways and the hedges are global, as is Christ's call. So what are we seeing here? What are we witnessing? What are we celebrating? It is workers sent out into the fields so that Christ's house will be filled. You thought it was a graduation. It's actually a demonstration of the Father's promise to His beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father demonstrating the promise to his son that all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So, class of 2019, go into the world and make disciples. Go into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that Christ's house may be filled. You go with our joy, you go with our love, you go with such a faithful theological education. You, you go with the love and the prayers of the faculty who have taught you. You go with the hopes of all of those gathered here and some whom you know have already gone to be with the Lord who have prayed for you. Even if they did not know you by name, they prayed that one would come in order to preach the word and to teach the scriptures and to take the gospel. And even if they did not know your name, God knew your name and the name is you and the time is now. Go fill Christ's house. 
I've never spoken of a gospel commission in those terms before, but this text compels me to do so. I look out with great joy. We love you. We're so thankful for you. You look magnificent dressed in those gowns. We know what they mean. But you're going to look ever more glorious in the robes of glory in heaven, in the resurrection of the just. This is just a foretaste. And it also helps us to understand what's really happening here. We may never see each other in this life on this earth again. That's a hard thing to say. I, I, in, in, by God's grace, we often do get to see one another, but year by year, you realize you haven't seen this missionary in some time. Over time, I haven't seen that preacher in some time. And this picture right now of these graduates, it will never exactly be replicated again on earth. And it's okay. Because if we do not meet again in this house, we will surely meet again in Christ's house. His house will be full. So go and compel people to come in until Christ fills his house and calls you home. Amen. God bless you.